Hi everybody, you're listening to a special episode of Suburban Dharma. I guess we might call these the uh, COVID Chronicles, not really sure yet, but since my my wife and I are sequestered in our, our room most of the time, we thought we'd put this time to good use and, and uh, make some more episodes for the podcast so that people can enjoy and study the Dhamma at home. And uh, so that's the plan. We're, we're going to keep this pretty informal, um, mostly keep it as a kind of discussion. And so we have a topic in mind today. In any case, uh, let me go ahead and introduce myself. I don't usually do this, but my name is Stephen. I also go by my Dharma name, Suboda. And I have been the voice you've been hearing this entire time on Suburban Dharma. But today I am accompanied by my very lovely wife, Christina. Christina, go ahead and say hello. Hello. How are you guys doing? They can't respond. This is a podcast. But I hope they're doing well. hope everyone out there who's listening is happy and healthy and uh, finding good and productive ways to use their time since uh, we all find ourselves sequestered in one way or another. And if you are one of the few who are able to work out and about in the world, I also hope that you are safe. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, the topic I had in mind today, let's see how, how interesting this might be. Uh, this came about, uh, online. I, I was on Facebook as, as many of us are lately. I think our, our social media intake has all kind of gone up a bit and our usage overall. Would you agree? Are you using your phone more? I'm using my phone more, but not for social media. I tend to edit my social media intake just because it kind of freaks me out sometimes. Yeah, especially right now. I, yeah. I think that's that's true and accurate. Um, I know a lot of people are reaching out to each other, various friends and family over social media. And Zoom, uh, I think, is getting a whole lot of use now. I know, I know I'm using Zoom a lot more. And a lot of other things like that, FaceTime and any other... Kind of app out there that lets you actually see someone's face for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I, I found this story online. A friend of mine shared it, um, kind of unassumingly. You know, he he thought that this was a traditional Buddhist story, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and read it out loud. And to make this a little more interactive, uh, Christina, I think I'm going to see if if after hearing this story, you can tell me and the listeners why it's not a buddhist story and then maybe we'll have a discussion about that and and relate it to some other uh teachings from the pali suttas the sutta pithika how does that sound sounds good okay so i'm going to start by reading this story and uh this story is available all over the place online Uh, people have made youtube videos of it people have uh written on it like written it kind of word for word uh, on their blogs, you can pretty much find it anywhere and everywhere online, and it, it seems very, very Buddhist and very wise, and it seems like a like a true story. And uh, well, maybe maybe you'll see why it's so popular. All right, so the story starts like this: Once Buddha was traveling with a few of his followers. While they were passing a lake, Buddha told one of his disciples, I am thirsty. Do do get me some water from the lake. 
the disciple walked up to the lake. At that moment, a bullock cart started crossing through the lake. As a result, the water became very muddy and turbid. The disciple thought, how can I give this muddy water to Buddha to drink? So he came back and told Buddha, the water in there is very muddy. I don't think it is fit to drink. After about half an hour, again, Buddha asked the same disciple to go back to the lake. The disciple went back and found that the water was still muddy. He returned and informed Buddha about the same. After some time, again, Buddha asked the disciple to go back. This time, the disciple found the water had settled down and the water was clean and clear. So he collected some water in a pot and brought it to Buddha. Buddha looked at the water, and then he looked up at the disciple and said, See what you did to make the water clean? You let it be, and the mud settled down on its own, and you have clear water. Your mind is like that too. When it is disturbed, just let it be. Give it a little time. It will settle down on its own. You don't have to put in any effort to calm it down. It will happen. It is effortless. Having peace of mind is not a strenuous job. It is an effortless practice, so keep your mind cool and have a great life ahead. So that's the story. And uh, the last little bit there, having peace of mind, turns out that was actually not in quotations. My bad. That's actually the author commenting on that. Uh, but all of this is author unknown, so sort of people putting this out there. What do you think of this story? I thought it was a really interesting story. I don't think it's a Buddhist story because the Buddhist path is not one with a lack of effort. Mm. Um, it's a one of um, focused effort, right effort, one might say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... It's not necessarily about clearing the mind, but about calming the emotions so that you can think clearly about how to end suffering. Hmm. Yeah, you said some good stuff there. So uh, let's go to the first point. What was the first thing you said? The no effort part. No effort. Yeah. So when, when I heard this story, that that was the first thing I picked up on, too. This this idea that uh, the path is is effortless. And uh, as you already pointed out, effort is a part of the Eightfold Path. You know, the, uh, the part of the, the Eightfold Path that's usually called like the meditative part. So you have three parts of the Eightfold Path, right? All eight can be put into three categories. You have sila, which is all of the, the ethical parts of behavior, right? The actions. And then you have samadhi, which is usually the meditative part. That's how people translate it. And then you have panya, the wisdom part. And so in the samadhi part, that's where you have right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So to have some someone go around and say that the, the Buddha taught uh, an effortless path, you know, you don't, you don't strain or strive or anything. Now, to be fair, I also wouldn't use like a, a strenuous effort either, because I don't think that's right effort. But definitely effort's involved, you know, and, and certainly in, in terms of, of calming the mind. And, uh, and so that's, that's good. You, you picked up on that. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to say? Um, what were those, uh, different sectors of the Eightfold Path? The, like, three sections that it gets split up into? So, sila, that's, uh-huh. that's moral conduct. So that's, 
that would be um, it's like right action, right speech, right livelihood. Oh, and now she's taking notes. If you hear it, you know that's that's what she's doing. She's writing this stuff down. Uh, so that's that's the sila component, right? Sila mm-hmm. means conduct. And then panya, that's where you have... There's a couple ways of translating it. Uh, some translate it as uh, right understanding and right thought. Uh, some translate it as right view and right resolve. Okay, go ahead. Um, we didn't talk about yet the uh, about it not being about clearing the mind, but about calming emotions so that you can think clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, let's see, that's an interesting way of putting that, um, calming emotions. Yeah, I mean, in, in some way, that's, that's true. I, I would say that we're, we're definitely working on not being uh, controlled by our, our emotions or our impulses. Mm-hmm. Right effort, part of that is uh, making a choice on our intentions. In, in fact, when the Buddha would teach right effort, he would talk about cultivating uh, skillful qualities and uh, doing away with uh, abandoning unskillful qualities. So it's not that, that emotions need to be calmed or, or removed or somehow you know pushed down, anything like that. Um, if anything certain emotions can be really useful in terms of of skillfulness you know anger might not be very useful uh but compassion might be yeah you know so you can look at something unskillful like anger and then look for something skillful like compassion and turn towards one and abandon the other in fact one way of weakening unskillful thoughts is by giving rise to a skillful one and then putting your energy into that. And then that'll lessen the the effects, rather, rather lessen the strength of that emotion. So it's not calming emotions entirely, but using emotions as a kind of tool. Okay. Right? Yeah. Um, I know that you practice a lot of breath meditation, and I know, like, part of that is, okay, you you can get your mind onto some of these really um, scary things, like, uh, you, you can't escape death. Mm-hmm. And then, like, if you start to, like, freak out, you can come back to the breath. So that you're not consumed by despair. Well... Maybe? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, kind of. The, the breath, uh, some people describe it as, as like an anchor, something that, that keeps you in the present moment as you are thinking about these qualities. I don't know. I, I'm, I, I don't think that the breath is used necessarily in that way. Uh, the breath is, is definitely used to unify the mind and also give it some form of, of nourishment that is beneficial, skillful, you know, a good kind of nourishment. Because breath meditation ends up becoming very, very peaceful and pleasant. You know, right around the time we're able to breathe sensitive to the entire body, and then calming the entire body, we find that 
two qualities come up, piti and sukha, joy and happiness. Mm-hmm. So like those are actually good feelings that come about from meditation. And it's not just, here's this thing I, I turn to when I have this kind of thought pop up. Yeah. That's actually the common way people think about breath meditation as this thing that's supposed to suppress thoughts or something you turn to to stop thoughts. But that's not actually accurate because thoughts can be really helpful on the path. Yeah. Thoughts, just like with emotions, we can choose a skillful thought to abandon a, an unskillful thought. And one of the thoughts we can have in meditation is how great it is to be meditating and how skillful it is and how pleasant and peaceful and happy it is compared to the kind of striving we do after sensual pleasures. Because we never think about that kind of striving, and that's definitely striving. You know, all the effort you do to heat up that hot pocket. So, yeah, I know, very very (laughs) full of effort. But it's true, you know, there's all these things that that we do. Like, like think about everyone who's really sad that all the bars are closing, because now where are they going to go get laid, you know? They're, They're all in quarantine, so they can't, you know? Yeah. But that's a kind of striving too. You see, you see people who are caught up in that race. They're all competing against each other. They're all trying to strive after things. They're all trying to to grasp at pleasure, and and there it's a lot of hard work. And then when you find when you sit down to meditate, it does take effort and it does take a lot of other good qualities. But that effort is different. And I wouldn't say it's an abandoning of effort. You just stop and don't do anything to quiet the mind. And that's that other issue, too, is that people assume that the path is about quieting the mind, stopping yeah. thoughts. Now, there are states of meditation where th- thoughts do quiet down. Mm-hmm. But it's not by just letting the mind just settle on its own. Because you can try to do that, and it, and it doesn't happen. The mind is very good at coming up with, with stuff to think about. That's what it does. Mm-hmm. And stuff to crave for and stuff to cling to. Yeah. views that we have they they come up again and so we have a very busy mind and if you just kind of leave it alone it just does its thing it just kind of it it does stay busy mm-hmm. so it's not about this effortless uh allowing the mind to just settle on its own you know the thing is the buddha really did uh use water as an example a lot of times lakes rivers streams but it was never about effortlessness you know um one of the things i can share with you right now is is a sutta from the anguttara nikaya it's called a pool of water and so this one has a completely different message now think about the story we just read one where no one's citing what sutta it comes from what agama comes from, it's, if it's from the Chinese canon, nothing. They don't say where this comes from. They just say this is a story that happened where the Buddha's walking with some disciples and there's some unnamed disciple. That's kind of odd too, because generally speaking in the suttas, when the Buddha's talking to somebody, there's some kind of name or epithet or something. There's some hint at, at who it is, you know, and, and sometimes he's talking to, say, Ananda, Especially if someone's getting him water, that sounds like his attendant. So it could be Ananda or one of the other attendants before Ananda, or it would have been Sariputta or Mahamogalana or somebody, but just a disciple. That's already very strange. So in, in any case, here's this sutta, a pool of water. And and you can already tell this is this is not about effortlessness. So it begins so it begins this way. 
Suppose there was a pool of water, sullied, turbid, and muddy. A man with good eyesight standing there on the bank would not see shells, gravel, and pebbles, or shoals of fish swimming about and resting. Why is that? Because of the sullied nature of the water. In the same way that a monk with a sullied mind would know his own benefit, the benefit of others, the benefit of both, that he would realize a superior human state, a truly noble distinction of knowledge and vision. Such a thing is impossible. Why is that? Because of the sullied nature of his mind. Suppose there were a pool of water, clear, limpid, and unsullied. A man with good eyesight standing there on the bank would see shells, gravel, and pebbles, and also shoals of fish swimming about and resting. Why is that? Because of the unsullied nature of the water, in the same way that a monk with an unsullied mind would know his own benefit, the benefit of others, the benefit of both, that he would realize a superior human state, a truly noble distinction of knowledge and vision. Such a thing is possible. Why is that? Because of the unsullied nature of his mind. So what are some things that you, you pick up on that? So the the whole like thing is this skillful versus unskillful, and it's not about the transformation from one to the other, but it's about the virtues of and non-virtue of each state. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're in a non-skillful place where your actions are unskillful, where your mind is unskillful and you're wrapped up in all the, um, starts with a D defilements. Good. You, you can't see all the good stuff, Mm -hmm. but when you start getting detached from defilements and start moving toward the skillful you you begin to see more clearly the good stuff and what is worthwhile good so i i'm glad you brought up the defilements because that's exactly the kind of sullied water we're talking about there yeah exactly so the defilements greed aversion and ignorance or delusion. Yeah, exactly. So that becomes the issue. It's not about uh, giving up on, on effort and letting the mind settle. Rather, we clear up the waters of the mind by abandoning defilements, by uprooting them. So this, this, uh, this clear water this, that we find, that we're striving for, is the abandoning of, of all sorts of unskillful qualities of mind. Exactly. I get the picture of, like, a factory putting pollutants in and then shutting off the factory and the pollutants slowly drifting away. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's one way of looking at it. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of examples that we can, we can look to. And the problem with that one is that there would still be residue in that lake, let's yeah. say. Yours would work if we're talking about a river, but like that just means all that stuff went downstream. Yeah, yeah. It's so, not a perfect analogy. No, no, but it, it's still a good one, you know. I, I would say, though, that when it comes to the defilements, we're fully eradicating them. 
to the point where there's there's no trace. In fact, that residue that continues is pretty much what keeps someone around until they they pass away. So like someone who becomes an arahant, fully liberated, they continue to live because everything that lives lives until it dies, right? That's the same idea. So what keeps them going once they've reached nibbana is that they have that residue left of their kamma, their their actions and intentions and the activities that brought them into the world. So they don't fully go into nibbana, they're their full release until they they die, until all the residue is is completely dissolved, uh, vanishes, let's say. One way of of using rather one way of describing that is uh, like if you think of a campfire. So if you're camping and you have this fire, you, know, you build it up, there's all those logs, you set them on fire, fire blazes for a long time. And then after a while, the, the fuel is starts to be ex- expended, and the flames get smaller and smaller and smaller until there are no flames, but then there are embers. And the embers glow for a long time, and then the embers stop glowing, but then there's heat. And so we can think of that as the stages of awakening. And so by the time you have those, the heat still coming off, then you're really talking about someone who's like a non-returner. And, you know, there's still that heat coming off. But so when you get to that point of, say, a non-returner, you have the heat still coming off, radiating from where the fire was, but the fire is gone. Yeah. Someone who's become an arahant, it's completely cooled, cooled to the touch. None of the embers are hot anymore. All the embers are gone. All that's left is what remained of the, the logs, you know, the, that bit of ash and everything. But all of that heat is gone. The flames yeah. have been gone for a long time. So, like, that's one way of thinking about it. We have our cat here, and she is adorable. She is being pretty cute, yeah. And luckily, uh, pretty quiet. She was purring and meowing earlier. Um, let's see. There's something. Uh, what was the translation of Samadhi? So let's see. I'm trying to think of a of a good so samadhi is is what's usually translated as concentration. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so when you look at the eightfold path, the 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 actual eighth one, although it's not eighth because it's a step, it's just eighth because it's eighth. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at that, they translate that as. When you look at that, they translate that as sama samadhi, mm. and so that is right concentration or you could also translate it as uh unification um tranquility a lot of people have have come up with a lot of different words Mm -hmm. but when you hear someone talk about right concentration they're talking about samadhi okay um what was the category that included right effort right mindfulness and right concentration samadhi samadhi yeah so concentration Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, because if if you think of All right, let, let let me let me take a step back here. The reason why it's called that is because when you look at suttas where the Buddha talks about the eightfold path and he describes what right samadhi is or what what right concentration is, he talks about the jhanas. That's right concentration. So, essentially concentration is meditation. Yeah. So you can think of effort and mindfulness as the supports for concentration, which is 
interesting because most people think nowadays that like mindfulness is the meditation and people are mindfulness crazy. I mean, we see that all over the place. Yeah. I mean, you even go to Stater Brothers and you're about, you're bound to find some magazine on mindfulness. You go to, you know, Barnes and Noble and there's mindfulness, whatever journal and whatever else. And it's always the same, you know, vaguely white woman in some yoga pants (laughs) sitting cross-legged, you know? And uh, it's always the same image. You know, you, you can tell who they're marketing it towards. But yeah, mindfulness has become the, the big buzzword and synonymous with meditation. But at least what I've found in studying the, the Pali Suttas, the Sutta, uh, the Sutta Pitaka, is that concentration is meditation. Because when the Buddha describes right concentration, he describes the jhanas. And yeah. jhana means meditation. Mm. So in, in uh, Pali, you have jhana. And then in Sanskrit, you have dhyana, and that is meditation. So effort and mindfulness are supports for concentration. In other words, mindfulness and right effort are the things that help us meditate better or help us meditate in the right way. And so concentration then, even though most people ignore that, is the actual meditative practice. Yeah. From what I've been able to find, jhana is the main meditative practice. So what people call the four absorptions, that is the way that the Buddha taught his monks and his lay disciples how to meditate. Even the four foundations of mindfulness, the satipatthana that people like to practice now in one form or another, um, are ways of getting into jhana. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when the Buddha even taught various aspects of jhana, he talked about the four foundations of, of mindfulness or the, uh, the four frames of reference. The way, that's the way some people translate it now, too. Mm. I think that translation makes it more obvious that there are frames of reference that we use to get into jhana. What are those four forms of frames of reference? Well, those have been translated a, a bit differently as well. Uh, but usually the, the way they're broken down is uh, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of mind, and mindfulness of mental qualities. So that's interesting. Mental qualities. Mental qualities like emotions? Mental qualities like... No, and see, this is where, where it also gets a bit tricky. Because after mindfulness of body, or rather the, the frame reference, right? So you have mm-hmm. these four foundations, or four frames of reference. And we'll use frames of reference as our translation for now. So when you're referencing the, the body, that's usually what you think of form, right? Yeah. Well, when you get to feeling, that sounds a lot like you're talking about emotions. But feeling is actually the sensations of the body. Yeah. And, uh, and so then you're talking about pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral sensations. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to mind, you're talking about the thoughts and, and, and all the things that happen in the mind. Some of those are emotional. In fact, when some people talk about the mind, they talk about it in terms of the heart because that makes it clear that you're talking about emotions as well. Yeah. 
So that would be the area of emotions, thoughts okay. and emotions. And then you get to that fourth one, and that gets pretty tricky because when you talk about mental qualities, that's when you think, oh, so these are the thoughts yeah, or the feelings or whatever. But that's precisely why some people don't use that translation of mental qualities because mm -hmm. when you actually read it, because when you read it in the Pali, the word, use, the word used is dhammas. And so dhammas can be used, can be translated in different ways. Dhammas can mean uh, teachings, it can mean uh, various realities, things like that. It's, it's a multifaceted word. But I do know some people that look at that fourth frame of reference, not as mental qualities, but as the Buddha's teachings. Mm. So then you're, you're meditating in reference to the body, in reference to feeling, in reference to mind, and in reference to the Dhamma. Yeah. And that's one way of understanding these four frames of reference, which does have a certain logic to it. But even when you look at mental qualities, you could say that that is the Dhamma, because the whole Dhamma is about how the mind functions and how mm -hmm. it clings to things. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at, say, the Anapanasati Sutta, mm -hmm. when you get to the fourth tetrad, it's all about the, it's all about the, the reference of, of Dhamma or reference of mental qualities. And you see things like, like abandoning and... Um, let me see. Okay, so the, uh, the fourth tetrad, we see here these mental qualities or dhamma in the sense that the person trains, them, the person trains uh, him or herself to focus on inconstancy, to focus on dispassion or fading, to focus on cessation, and then the final one to focus on relinquishment or relinquishing. So you can see how those are mental qualities in the sense that these are things that we are striving toward. We, we could say that they are uh, skillful mental qualities. Yeah. Inconstancy, dispassion, cessation, relinquishment, or relinquishing. But we can also say that that's the Dhamma itself, the very thing we're trying to do. Yeah. That we're trying to cultivate these qualities and trying to cultiv cultivate relinquishment. So I, I sometimes wonder whether or not that's splitting hairs between mental qualities and uh, Dhamma as the fourth frame of reference. I guess it depends on, on how you then describe what those words mean. And as far as I can see, those who say it's the Dhamma and those who say it's mental qualities more or less are talking about the same kind of thing. We're talking about things that we are trying to cultivate in ourselves. Yeah. And uh, that can be interesting, too, because some people think that with the four frames of reference, you're supposed to go through each one categorically. Mm -hmm. And others look at it more as a, a kind of toolkit where you use whichever one you need in the moment to to have uh, tranquility of mind. Yeah. So at any given time, you might focusing you might you might focus on, uh, you know, say pleasure or happiness or you might uh, focus on um you know, quieting the body, right, or or calming the mind. And there's different ways of going about that. But each time, each way, that's that's a kind of effort, a kind of skillful way of of moving towards something wholesome and, aban and abandoning something unwholesome, yeah. which we can see over and over again. That's the opposite of effortlessness, yeah. of just letting the sediment settle on its own. 
Yeah. And it this this kind of teaching, this you know, this effortless thing, I can see why it's so appealing. And it really is everywhere. Like one of my favorite oh, yes. books, that's one of the examples given, you know. Uh, I've talked about one of my favorite authors before, you know, Roland Marullo yeah. and, and his book Breakfast with Buddha. And that's one of the examples that, you know, that's in the book, you know, the the main character Otto is at breakfast with you know the the other main character of the book let's say uh you know a a rinpoche and they're sitting at a at a table having breakfast and that's the lesson used you know uh the rinpoche dumps a bunch of stuff in some water stirs it all up and it's all mixed up and and turbid i think is the way you can describe it just all mixed up and, and cloudy and then he lets the cup sit there and it starts to settle and like Wow, what a beautiful image for meditation. Yeah. And, you know, I, I recognize that there are some meditative traditions, even within, you know, greater Buddhism overall, like pan-Buddhism. There are, there are definitely traditions that are about not interacting with the mind. Yeah. Zen in particular, you know, the Chan tradition and then the Zen tradition in, in Japan, uh, Chan tradition in China and the Zen tradition in Japan, have forms of meditation like that where it's it's an effortless thing because you are trying to not get involved with the mind yeah in fact they talk about the quality of no mind and shikantaza means just sitting you really are abiding and just letting things resolve on their own yeah but in my own experience that hasn't worked for me yeah what has worked is something like anapanasati and satipatthana where I have these tools I can use to train the mind towards skillfulness. And I've seen results with that. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of confidence in that now. I, yeah. I think there's value in like sitting and settling. But I think that you kind of have to go beyond that. Like you have to sit, settle, and then maybe look at your day. And be like, okay, were my actions skillful? Were my actions unskillful? Because if you don't examine what you're doing, the cup's just going to get cloudy again. And you're just going to continue to not be able to see what actions are appropriate. And what actions will bring you closer to the goal. You're right, and and that's actually why you can't have just settling. Yeah. Because one could say that, that the part about breath meditation that people like, when they're just with the breath and just breathing into the body and breathing out, and they have those pleasant feelings arise just from concentrating on the breath, that some might say that that is that just letting things settle. Yeah. But that's not the only thing you do. There are other yeah. qualities involved. So ardency, alertness. Yeah. Uh, what's the other one? It's the translation for wisdom, discernment. So ardency, ardency, alertness, and discernment. Because it's not this thing that you can just sort of... It's not this kind of thing where you can just tune out. Yeah. Right? You, you don't just tune out. You actually stay involved in the process and you're constantly looking and evaluating the the quality of your mind the yeah. mental qualities i feel like if you settle and then you don't do anything else that's not meditation that's a nap it could be yeah 
Yeah, that's, and... That's definitely uh, sleep for me. Well, the thing is, though, if, if we're being fair to those that do something like Shikantaza, yeah. uh, they are also trying to be alert. They're not taking yeah. a nap either. In fact, if they do start to zone out and fall asleep, someone might come around in some of the more traditional zendos and smack them in the back with a stick to keep them awake. Mm-hmm. But there's there's nothing that they are trying to do. Yeah. Whereas what I found in the polycanon, it's very much about trying to do something. Yeah. And it's that something is is intentional. Yeah. Kamma, our intentions, our actions, is how we we attain the goal. How yeah. rather how we get to the goal. The goal itself is not marked by kamma. It's it's the complete eradic- eradication of kamma. But we use kamma to get there. Yeah. And so it has to start with the kind of mind we have, the kind of mind we're cultivating. Mm-hmm. And so that's precisely why we have to stay alert and why yeah. we have to use discernment and look at the kind of thoughts we're having. Yeah. This uh, no hands, like no, no hands approach, like this hands off approach to the quality of our mind and the thoughts therein has never worked for me. But also, more importantly, it's not a teaching I have found in the Pali canon. This idea yeah. of of effortlessness. It might be found in other traditions. You know, I don't know if there's any Mahayana texts that uh, precisely describe the story we we read today. But I do know that they are more likely to to view the goal as something that's reached by a kind of thought. Or a kind of realization, or even a, a kind of uh, abandoning of, of action, because this is a bit ironic. The example we have of just letting the water settle is found for sure in a traditional text, but it's not Buddhist. Hmm. It's Taoist. Oh. There's a passage in Lotsu's uh, Tao Te Ching. Where he actually says, you know, can you can you let the water settle? Can you not get involved and, and sit back and let the water settle? Yeah. And so we do see that, that kind of thinking in Taoism. Mm-hmm. This effortlessness. That it's the fact that we exert effort that makes things complicated. And, and it's actually once we, we abandon effort and do things in, in an effortless way that we find this, this way to flow. You know, the way water flows in an effortless way, right? The yeah. path of, of least resistance. Yeah. But a lot of what I've seen in in the Pali canon does not line up with that. And the way I've practiced and the way I've actually seen results doesn't line up with that. Yeah. Because it's actually, for me at least, useful to have some tools. Yeah. Have some way of, of responding to specific things that come up in the mind rather than say well i'll just watch that i'll watch that go i'll just watch it in my mind and then it'll just go because it doesn't just go uh the mind the things that go they come back again and again and and again again. yeah and just watching it just being aware of it doesn't settle it but giving rise to skillful qualities and skillful thoughts that does something about it yeah. Because every time an unskillful thought arises, then I can exert some energy and some persistence 
to give rise to something skillful that weakens the unskillful thought. Yeah. So let's have an example. Let's say, timely example, we are craving an outing to a coffee shop. Yeah. And there's that craving, and it comes over and over again. Mm -hmm. What would we try to um, cultivate instead? Well, there's there's a few ways to do it. So, um, one way of one way of looking at this, say we have this craving for for coffee, right? Which we do. One way to go about that is to give ourselves something else to do. So if we're craving coffee, and it's not like we need the coffee, we're craving the coffee, then we can sit down to meditate and give our minds something else to focus on. Say yeah. something like the breath. Yeah. The breath in that way can be something useful. We can breathe and feel the breath in the body and give rise to a, a pleasant sensation that's not dependent on drinking something warm, right? And maybe what we're craving is some skillful conversation, which we can have here. Well, and there's that too. Um, one way of, of giving rise to a skillful thought is rather than focusing on the thing you don't have, focus on the thing that you do. Yeah. So uh, we might not have access to, say, coffee bean or Starbucks or Phil's or any other coffee shop that we enjoy, but we do have coffee in the house, and it's some of it is really good quality and some of it is not great quality, but we still have it and are able to enjoy it. Yes. We have lots of tea that we can drink that's also very satisfying. Oh, it is so satisfying. But when we see this craving, this thing that we're, that we're leaning into, yeah. we can always respond in a different way. Another way is realizing that currently we have no control over our circumstances. Yeah. Coffee beans closed. Phil's is closed. We can't go to those places. So pick up Phil's. No. Well, they can they can deliver beans. I think still if you want to do that. Yeah, they can. uh, But my point is, in in that situation, what you can what you can do is give rise to thoughts of and feelings of equanimity, realizing that that is not in your control. But what is in your control? And generally speaking, that, that would be your mind. Yeah. You know, the thing that you can actually exert some effort on. And so, once again, you find yourself having to choose to respond differently to a craving. Yeah. Also, another option is realizing that a craving is just a craving and doesn't need to be acted on or obsessed over. That you can direct your mind somewhere else. So it doesn't always have to be meditation. That's not always the answer. I'm craving this. Well, I'll go meditate. I'm craving that. Well, I'll go meditate. I feel a version of this. Well, I'll go meditate. I mean, sometimes that's kind of true. Like, I'm always going to recommend, like, hey, do some meditation. Standing meditation, sitting meditation, walking meditation, lying down. Those are, you know, the, the four sort of bodily states that the Buddha said we can meditate in, and just true, mm-hmm. which means we can meditate actually in in all aspects of our lives you know we think of mindfulness as something that you can do all the time but we think of concentration that it's, that that only happens when we're sitting down in, yeah. in meditation like formal meditation but concentration actually the buddha recommended this at, at all times you know when 
monks were talking to each other about the Dhamma. They could be in they could actually be in jhana then. Or if they were listening to a Dharma talk, they could be in jhana. And to actually have a meditative state while doing everything, including going to the bathroom. Mm. Which is not something we usually think of as a meditative state, you know, going and no. going and taking a leak. But that's true. That's also a, a we can we can actually do that in a meditative way. Yeah. Now, meditative does not mean vegetative, especially if you're able to talk and hold a conversation. Yeah. So technically speaking, first jhana, we could be in first jhana right now and still have this conversation. Yeah. I think that was very useful. Thank yeah. You. You're welcome. Thank you. I, I really liked uh, your feedback. This was interesting. You had a lot of good questions and a lot of good insights, you know, of your own. So this was fun. Yeah. I, I agree. I, I really had fun, like, putting you through your paces. <laughs> That's okay. I only had to look up something maybe once, so not bad. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah. Yeah. And even then, it was just the this, this series of that that fourth tetrad that I couldn't remember. Like, I, I knew that cessation was in there. I knew relinquishment was in there. Uh, you know, I, I knew that, uh, I think dispassion was one of the other ones, right? Yeah, dispassion yeah. and inconsistency? Inconstancy. Inconstancy. Some people translate a, a, that as impermanence. Impermanence, yeah. So, yeah. So, again, like, I know them, but I, I sometimes forget the order. I just know that relinquishment is the last one, you know? And so, yeah, I, I did have to look that up. For those of you who don't notice the edit later. <laughs> but, uh, but I did have to look that up because I couldn't remember the, the order, the progression in that fourth tetrad. But yeah, yeah, pretty good. So do, do you have any final thoughts? Um, we would really appreciate hearing back from you in our comments. Um, let us know if you like this format. Um, let, let us know if you'd like to hear more of me, especially during this, uh, this hermitage we have going on here. Hermitage. Retreat. Retreat. Um, so uh, give us your feedback. Um, let us know what you guys are doing to be more mindful during this retreat. Give us reviews. Interact with us on Facebook. Um, generally say hi. Mm. Notice that? She's on one episode, now it's us. Hmm. But... <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think that's that's good. I you know it, it would be good to uh, to have more interaction. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't want to necessarily think about it in terms of, of feedback because you know this is a, a Dharma podcast. Yes, it's nice to have a little more followers, but that's not the point. And it's nice to have reviews, but that's also not the point. Uh, mostly, it'd be great to just have uh, more interaction with with listeners. Especially in this time when a lot of us are feeling isolated and feeling alone. And even if we have like a brick and mortar place where we go and meditate, an actual roof where people gather, we're, cut, we're currently cut off from a lot of our communities, our Chattuparisa or our Sangha, right? Uh, so we, we are sort of stuck having a virtual Sangha and a, a virtual Chattuparisa, uh, fourfold assembly, right? Oh. Uh, so yeah, it, it would be good to hear from people and there's a couple ways to do that. Um, there is a suburban Dharma Facebook page. I don't really use it as much as I should. I'm not as active on there as I should, but 
Uh, I will see messages sent there and comments sent there. And there is the ability to review the podcast on Facebook. It's also possible to review the podcast on iTunes if you subscribe to iTunes. Or rather, if you subscribe to uh, Suburban Dharma via iTunes. Uh, there's also my email if you wanted to reach me that way. It's suboda at suburbandharma.org. And Suboda is spelled S-U-B-O-D-H-A. And uh, yeah, I think I think that's pretty good for our first go. Um, again, please do let us know if, it, if this is a useful format during this time. Again, it's a little more informal. Uh, it's, it's discussion-based. It's a chance for me to interact with my wife in this fun way, who is still starting out on her Dharma journey. And uh, I actually think that she did a, a very good job uh, discussing the Dharma with me and, and so had some very good insights. So I, I'm proud of her. And uh, I hope that if you have any comments for her, they're, they're very positive ones because she did great. <laughs> so everyone out there, uh, please continue to do what you can, do what you need to, to be healthy and safe. I think that I can speak for both of us in that we wish for your happiness and peace. Thank you for listening, and you'll hear can from we, us next week. Yes. Can we end with the uh, with the prayer for for all suffering beings? Sure, sure, yeah. So we'll we'll end with a a very uh, common chant. It's done at IBMC every Sunday. So since we're not at IBMC this weekend or for the next few weekends, we'll go ahead and say it together. Okay. Mm-hmm. May the, the suffering, suffering ones be suffering free. And the fear-struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, and the sick find health relief. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.